Good morning, everyone. If you are in the treehouse age group, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can go line up in the back. Go line up with Miss Christie. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. You're welcome, Audrey. Thank you for, for engaging. Appreciate that. You know, it's always, it can be awkward when it's, you know, more intimate crowd to want to go back and forth and banter, but that's, that's kind of how I know that people are still here and engaged and with me, so I'll continue to do that. Um, I did that at Dumfries when I preached there a couple weeks ago, and it was a little awkward because it's a bigger group, so you're not really sure how it's going to go, but about, you know, 10% maybe kind of indulged me, but that was all I needed, so I just kept making eye contact with those that would just respond back to me. Anyway, <clears throat> welcome. Um, if you've got a Bible, you go ahead and flip over to John chapter 19. So we've been walking through the gospel according to John for a season now, and we're coming to the point of this particular um, moment in time that I think is probably the, the most well-known aspect of the Christian faith, if you will. And so we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to read our passage this morning so you can see where we're headed. Pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. So we're in John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 17 and read through 27. This is the word of God says, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pause now. Before we examine this text in greater detail, and God ask for your help, we know that the scriptures are good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And in it, there is life and hope. We draw strength and courage and conviction and direction from your word. 
So God, we come expectant to hear from you this morning. Speak through your word. Even though this is a, a familiar passage, Lord, there is something to be gained. A, a greater depth of our understanding and our love for who you are. I pray that each one of us would grow deeper in that love for you because of what we study and read this morning. And we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Can you uh, put the number up, please, for the questions? If you have a question at any point, you can text the number that will shortly be on the screen. There it is. Um, Sam and I will come up here at the end and attempt to answer your questions. But uh, please, feel free to interact with us this way. It's a great it's a great opportunity to be able to do that. Sound good? All right. Stump the chump, whatever you want to call it. That's usually when you're up here, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we call it something different when me and Sam are here. <laughs> All right, so the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, probably if you were to ask anybody anything in the world about the Christian faith, probably the cross, the crucifixion, is something that you're going to be able to um, discuss, at least in some detail. Because the fact that Jesus of Nazareth hung on a cross and died is not disputed at all across really all people and all ages. Everybody can agree that a man named Jesus of Nazareth hung on a cross and died. However, when you begin to talk about what that means, what is the significance of this man named Jesus hanging on the cross, then you're going to have some problems. That's where the disputes begin to take place. Here's what we need to know about going into the message. Just keep this in mind as we walk through the text this morning. That the cross reveals the true identity of Jesus and at the same time reveals our need for him. We could go a million different directions in talking about the crucifixion and what it means. But I hope to show you from this particular instance from John that the cross is going to reveal to us in greater detail and more clarity who Jesus really is and show us how desperate we are for him. Keep that at the forefront, okay? If you look at John's gospel account, especially, especially this particular passage, you'll, you'll notice that there's some differences between this and the other three gospels, the synoptic gospels, right? They have certain things that they address that John doesn't and vice versa. So let me just let me start with some basic backgrounds, kind of set the tone of where we are with this whole thing happening here. So death by, by crucifixion, right? Was this something that the Romans came up with? Anybody? I got one yes, I got a eh. It's not. It's not something the Romans came up with. In fact, it was around for hundreds and hundreds of years before this point. But by the time we get here in history, the Romans had perfected it. They knew exactly how to prolong death. I mean, it was, it was awful. Awful. Rarely, rarely used for Roman citizens, although on occasion they would do that, but it was very rare. It was used for what we'll call the dregs of society, right? The lowest of the low, the criminals, the people who were uprising against the government or, or even religious heretics, people who were attempting to upset the balance of Rome, right? The, the, the peace that they thought they had. Anything that was a threat to Rome in that regard, they were thrown up on the cross. 
And you can look up how many people had died through this means, but it's hundreds of thousands of people over the course of history that have, have died through this. Would probably say one of, if not the most inhumane means of death. Now, I'm not going to go like super deep into detail, but depending on the method of crucifixion, there are various ways that you could be crucified. Hands out to the side, this way, that way, hands up above you. The expiration of life would come anywhere between 30 minutes and three days, depending on how long they wanted to prolong this thing. Death usually came from asphyxiation, choking on your own blood, basically, right? Um, again, not to get like gruesome and graphic, but, but we got to know what exactly is happening here. Oftentimes, people's shoulders would become dislocated. Arms would be four, five, six inches longer than when they started, when they come down from the cross. Couldn't hold themselves up anymore. Oftentimes, they would break femurs and ankles with an iron rod to try to expedite the death, if that was the case. It was absolutely excruciating and there was absolutely nothing a person could do to escape from or alleviate the pain. Nothing. This is the death that Jesus of Nazareth encountered. He was sentenced to this. It says, so they took Jesus in verse 17, went out bearing his own cross. So this is the common practice of the day. They would often have a place designated where the crucifixions would be, and the vertical post would already be in the ground, and the criminals would have the cross beam attached to their shoulders, and they would carry it to where it was they were being crucified, usually following some sort of beating, scourging, so they're already in pain, suffering. In this case, we see that Jesus is able to carry that portion of the cross for a little bit, but the other gospel writers tell us that a, a man named Simon, at one point, when Jesus can no longer go on, is identified and brought to help Jesus carry it the rest of the way. Now, John doesn't point this out. And his exclusion of this is, is not contradiction. But John's purpose is to show us that in Christ alone does the burden for humanity be borne on him alone. Right? He wants us to see that it is through Christ alone. Yes, this man named Simon was drawn out to help, but, but John chooses to focus on something bigger. And where was it then that Jesus came to hang on the cross? What was the name of that place according to John? Golgotha, place of the skulls. There's a couple different names that we're, we're given, right? In Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. Um, What's another name for this place that is often used, um, starts with a C? Calvary. Calvary, that's right. Not cavalry. That's a different word altogether. But cav cavalry, Calvary. Um, what does the word Calvary mean? I'll give you a hint. It's the exact same word. They mean skull. <laughs> I didn't know that. I've heard of, of that, that word forever. It, it, it is the Latin term for skull. The exact location, like if you were to go and find it, you, you can't find it today. Some people would say, yes, it's here, yes, it's there. But 
it's, it's not a place where we can go and, and find today. But it's interesting that this place that is so closely linked with, with pain and suffering and death is the exact place where we see Jesus bringing hope and joy and life. Talk about a stark contrast, right? So the next time you consider and think about Calvary, be mindful of that very clear distinction, that juxtaposition, if you will, between death and life. So they crucified Jesus. And who was with him being crucified? Two others, right? The gospel writers give us a little more detail that they were thieves or criminals, right? And where's Jesus among the three? He's there in the middle, right? Now, John, again, doesn't give us a lot of detail about the specifics of how he was crucified. We know from later accounts when Jesus is resurrected and he's interacting with the disciples that we, we see about some, some holes, some scars that are remaining. So we know that at some point he was actually nailed to the cross. Then there's this inscription written and attached to the cross. And who, who makes sure that that is up there on the cross? Pilate. And what did it say exactly? It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And written in three languages. Three languages. I mean, he wanted to make sure that everybody that passed by would know what this man was accused of. Right? It was a very um, open area, kind of common thoroughfare, so many people would come. Remember, what Jewish holiday is happening right now? It's Passover, so people, millions are coming, right? So everybody is passing by this and seeing this inscription written up there. It's actually a pretty common practice. Most people that were going out to be crucified would have their crime broadcast. Either they'd be carrying it on them as they carried the cross or it would be up on there with them. So this was a common practice. But with what Pilate had written, specifically what he wrote, we begin to see the true identity of Jesus being revealed. Right? That's what I told us we wanted to see, that the true identity. Up until this point, that, that title of king of the Jews was usually used to mock Jesus, to make fun of him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews, huh? Yeah, sure you are. Making fun of him. But the reality is, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all creation, right? He's the promised Messiah. So his true identity here being revealed. And notice the words that Pilate chooses. He didn't write down an accusation, did he? He wrote down a title. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And were the religious leaders thrilled at that? Not at all. What did they want done? Yeah, don't, don't put that up there. <laughs> Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. That's what they were all about. They wanted an accusation, not a statement. Change the sign. Does Pilate do it? Nope. What I've written, I've written it. It's almost like a little kick in the, in the face. Like, you wanted this. <laughs> I'm not playing your games. They wanted a personal claim. Jesus said this. But who were the ones that brought the accusation against Jesus in the first place? The Jewish leaders. They're the ones that said he did this. 
right? And now they want to, to be a personal claim by Jesus himself. So we move from above the cross and the sign to below the cross and the Roman soldiers who had crucified Jesus. They were dividing garments, his belongings, into equal parts. And how many of them were there, according to verse 23? How many soldiers? Four, because they were divided into four parts, one for each soldier, right? So this could have been like the sandals, um, perhaps like some sort of headpiece thing or, or something. They were divided up, but then they came to the tunic. Something special about the tunic. Before I get there, though, this is actually a common practice. right? The Roman soldiers were often more interested in taking whatever the criminals brought with them and dividing it among them than they were worried about what was happening on the cross. They're often distracted by yeah, casting lots or just arguing about who got what. But when they did get to the tunic, something caused pause for them. The tunic was special because of, of the words that were used to describe it, particularly how it is sewn. So what about that makes it special? Well, it was seamless. We, we saw that. Sewn in one piece from top to bottom. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us. Any seamstresses in, in the crowd? A couple? Maybe? Nobody. Okay. Even if you were, I mean, it's still, it, it wouldn't make much sense. But there is a lot of symbolism through this portion of the text. It's special, like I said, because of the language. The word woven, it said it was woven from top to bottom in one piece. That word is only ever used in the Old Testament to describe garments belonging to a priest. That particular word. The fact that it is described seamless actually adds to this imagery because the clothing belonging to a priest was created with great care. And for something to be seamless takes a lot of effort. Not only that, but the fact that they didn't tear it into pieces serves as another point of reference for us because Leviticus discusses the fact that priestly garments could not be torn. Why would you put that in the Bible? I mean, Leviticus has some weird stuff, right? But why make a note of, by the way, priestly garments cannot be torn? And then we have this reference as Jesus' garments are being considered, oh, don't. Don't tear that one. I think all of this together helps the reader to see that Jesus is once again being portrayed as the priest, the true high priest. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? Now we have another example of that. One commentator puts it this way. He says, it's fitting that the tunic is no longer worn by Jesus, for it is Jesus and no longer an earthly Jewish priest who takes away the sins of the world. God's people are about to be reconstituted around the person of Jesus and the role and functions once reserved for the high priest, intercession, sacrifice, reconciliation, cleansing, forgiveness from sins, are now fulfilled and superseded by Jesus himself. So the identity now that we see coming into picture for us is that Jesus is the true king, and Jesus is the true high priest. Now, have these themes been building throughout John? Yes. Yeah, you see them amping up. But in this moment, 
We get the clearest picture of it all coming to fruition. It's like, here is now the hour. Like, if you were to highlight where and stop time, that these things become the most clear, it's right here with Jesus on the cross. We did skip over a little fact that the, the garment, particularly the, um, the tunic, was gambled for, right? What were they doing for that thing? You're casting lots, throwing dice. Why does the Bible tell us that they did that? Right. Absolutely. Where can we go in the Bible to see that this act of casting lots or gambling for Jesus' garments was actually predicted hundreds and hundreds of years in advance? Psalm what? Psalm 22, 18. Okay, how did you know that? You just happen to know that? Oh, it's, it's in your Bible, yeah. There's probably a little number or a letter right where it says those particular words. If I can find those particular words. They divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. I got a little W. And if I follow the W over to the right, it tells me what exactly is going on there. Psalm 22, verse 18. This is significant for a couple of reasons. One is that it highlights the importance of Scripture fulfillment. Right? If these promises were made and they never came to pass, then what's the point of the promises? What's the point of the prophetic words being offered for us? And then even though, to most of the onlookers, remember we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross, we can look back and see everything unfolding. But for those that are looking on, Jesus' gruesome, horrible, horrific death, things seem to be beyond his control, right? They're like, there's no way that this is according to his plan. But by pointing to what Psalm 22 had predicted we're reminded that nothing happening, even in this moment, is outside of God's control. He was in control the whole time. right? These soldiers are simply doing what God said would happen generations before. So even in this grim moment, we see Jesus is absolutely in control. Then we've got these verses where we have some people introduced. How many people are introduced here at the end? Two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, let me help you. Standing near the cross, which was often permitted for family and people who were there, they could be close enough to where you could hear what was happening. There are four women and a dude. Four women and a dude. So yes, I saw the five in the back. You weren't just raising your hand, were you? No. Okay, five. So the ladies present are who's the first one? His Mary. Mary, his mother. Who's next? Mary's sister, who would be Jesus's aunt. Aunt. It's pronounced aunt. Aunt. Yep. Who's the next person? Mary, the wife of Clopas. I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, but if you do a little bit of research, 
you'll realize that there is a relationship, a connection between this woman, Mary, the wife of Clopas, to Joseph, Mary's wife. So it's actually Jesus' aunt on Joseph's side. Not to confuse you, but that's... Go look it up. And who's the fourth person? Mary. Mary. Another Mary. Okay, so that's part of the confusing part. Yeah. So Mary Magdalene, right? Four of them. Why are they present? Why are they there? Well, because they love Jesus, right? They have a vested interest in his life and what's going on. At some point, they played a critical role in the life of Jesus, right? And who's the guy? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that? Yeah, it's John, right? The guy who's, who's writing the book, as was said. So five folks. At one point, what, weren't there like hundreds of people following Jesus? Like so much so that Rome was starting to freak out that, that they were going to take over? <laughs> and at the point of death, how many do we have? Five. Interesting. So all of this sets up the only exchange that John records between Jesus and anyone else that's there at the scene. The other gospel accounts have some interactions between Jesus and the thieves and some other things that are going on, but this is the only thing that John records for us. So, having taken this simply as a moment where Jesus is helping his mother to ensure that she's going to be taken care of. Some people would say, that's all this is. Jesus is making sure that when he's gone, she's going to be cared for. Right? Because he would have been the provider, he would have been able to support her, and now that he's getting ready to go away, he wants to make sure that her care will continue. And there may be some of that happening here. But as with the other points that I've made already, there's some symbolism, there's things that go deeper in what's happening here. Especially in light of those previous symbolisms that I said that show us that Jesus is priest and king. Let's go back to John chapter 1. That might help us a little bit. It's not going to be on the, the screen, so you're just going to have to look it up yourself. John chapter 1, particularly verses 12 and 14. We have reference to the children of God, that is the sons and daughters, in verse 12. And then we have the unique Son of God in verse 14. So, the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, lowercase s. Then in verse 14, the Son of God. Unique. So Jesus, in this moment on the cross, he's actually doing something. He's establishing the true nature, <clears throat> excuse me, the true nature of sonship. Essentially, what he's doing is he's demonstrating that every one of them is in need of belonging to the Son of God. Over and above any kind of earthly relationship that's happening. His own mother, that he points out, is no less in need of this sonship that Jesus is talking about, or belonging to Jesus, than John, the beloved disciple, is in need of. She needs it just as much as he does. So Jesus is actually addressing the supernatural identity of his family. He's distancing himself from his mother. Remember at the wedding in, in Cana? 
and the, the wine, how did he address his mother? The same way. Woman, there's like a distancing for a reason, and now we see it again. It's not that he's dismissing her as his mother, but he's saying, you are different than I am. You are sons and daughters of the high king. I am the son of God. And this cross that I'm on right now is what distinguishes us, check this out, and unifies us. Interesting how that dichotomy works there. So as we're walking through this, some of this is like, man, you're like really talking about some deep theological things. And I, I get that. It's a, it's a little bit down in the weeds in, in some sense. But let me just spend just a few moments <clears throat> kind of wrapping things up in, in a way that hopefully makes sense for all of us. Because we can talk about you know, the symbolism and why it's important that Jesus is revealed in these ways. But let's just talk practically about some things that I think will help us land the plane, so to speak. So the cross, as we've said, reveals the true identity of Jesus. And what three identities have we seen so far? The king, priest, and the son. But the cross also reveals, what was it that I said earlier? His identity and our, our need for him. Right? It, it does both. And as I said at the beginning, the arguments about the crucifixion of Jesus don't begin until you, dis, you start discussing its meaning. Was it, was it just some dude that hung on a cross and died? Or was there something else going on? What does it mean for you and for me? Because on the cross is where the depth of the gospel is found. It's, it's the crux of the Christian faith. If you had to explain what Christianity is, what your faith is, could you do it without talking about the cross? Could you? You couldn't. So what is it about the cross that we need to know? Well, did Jesus live a perfect and sinless life? Absolutely. Does that matter? Yes. Was he resurrected from the dead? Did he even defeat death? Yes. Yes. Does that matter? Yes. Absolutely. He is able to hang on a cross as the only true and perfect sacrifice because of his sinless life. That's important. Makes him unique among all humanity, of all creation. And his resurrection from the dead, three days after he was buried, confirms that he was in fact who he said he was. Those things matter. But the cross... What happened on the cross? This is where propitiation takes place. There's that word. We've, we've used that word before, and some of you are like, what, the, what does that mean? Like, it's a, a weird name sometimes. You, don't even, you just skip over it because you don't know how to say it, right? What does that word mean? Is there a place that we can go in the scriptures to help us understand propitiation? Romans chapter 3 is a good place, a couple of places in Romans. I'm going to give you one that is actually written by John. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just read it to you. This is 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, 
but also for the sins of the world. What does the word mean? The word literally means averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. It refers to turning away the wrath of God as the judgment for our sin, which we deserve, by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what propitiation means. So are we just forgiven of our sins? When we talk about the gospel, a lot of people will say, your sins are forgiven, and that is true. But there is a whole other aspect of this that sometimes we miss, and that is the wrath of God. Do our sins deserve punishment? Yes. Do they deserve God's wrath? Yes. Absolutely. So if Jesus dies in our place and we're forgiven, what happens to the wrath of God? Does this kind of get swept under the rug? God's like, oh, you know what? Jesus died for your sins, so that whole wrath thing, don't worry about it. You're good. Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, that's true, but the wrath of God just didn't somehow float off into space. What kind of God would he be if he said, I will pour out my judgment on you if you sin? And then when we sin, it's not poured out. That is exactly what happened on the cross. So while Jesus is hanging in complete physical agony that we described earlier, now he takes our punishment as well. He took the wrath of God poured out for your sins and for mine. He was the propitiation for our sins. So the wrath of God wasn't just swept away. Jesus took it for us. That's important to understand. In Matthew's gospel account, Jesus at this moment, he cries out something. He says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? We sing about this moment in a song called How Deep the Father's Love. Some of you might know it. It says, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Brothers and sisters, it's the cross that reveals our need for a Savior. It was our sin, yours and mine, that held him up on that cross, which he died for. And this is the free gift of salvation that we talk about. That no one can earn. It's by grace, through faith, that we take hold of this incredible gift. This is what happened at the cross. We often just think about the physical aspects of Jesus' painful death, right? How many of you have seen the movie? What's it called? The Passion. The Passion. Right. Shows us in great, great, horrific detail the physical aspect. But in reality, that's just 
just a really small part. It's, it's what he accomplished on the cross. That great exchange. It's actually a banking term of being credited something that wasn't yours. The righteousness of Christ. It's not yours. It's not mine. In fact, we have unrighteousness only to bring. But he exchanges that. Hanging on the cross as he absorbs the wrath of God in our place. So it's the great king who orchestrated this from the very beginning. Right? This isn't plan B or C or D. This is how it was going to be from the very beginning. So Jesus as king sees the whole picture. And Jesus as the true high priest who presented himself as the one true sacrifice for us all. And it's the son now that we see who walks in obedience to the Father, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So as I said in the beginning, we could, we could go a million different ways when we're talking about the cross. But for you and for me today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then, then we should be able to communicate in some way what the cross accomplished. So, and, and, I, and I hope that we can do that in greater detail this morning. And as me and Mike were praying before service, my heart was that even though it's familiar, gaining a deeper understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross can help us grow in our love for him, deepen our appreciation for who he is and what he accomplished. And that's my prayer still for each of us. We'll never fully understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we will continue to grow in our understanding and depth and knowledge of that as we study things like this and as we consider who we are in light of the cross. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy of it all. Everything that we have to bring to you. We thank you. For the cross. This symbol of. Death. And destruction. And brutality. And pain. Is now a symbol of hope. And life. Everlasting life. Jesus, we, we pray that as we consider the work of the cross, you as the propitiation, you as the one who absorbed the wrath of God, who made a way for us to be reconciled back to God. The cross was that means. We're so grateful for what you did for us in that place. For without it, we are still separated, we're still lost, we're still under the curse and the wrath of God. So thank you for the freedom that we have through the cross. God, would you give us moments and opportunities this week to reflect 
what you did. Would you help us to replace sort of the intellectual understanding of the mechanics of what happened, God, with a profound and deep spiritual appreciation for what you did on the cross. So that we can share that truth with others. Help us to be bold in that. Oh, we love you. Thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray.